in Romans. Uh, Happens to be one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I hope that through the duration of this series that we go week after week after week that you don't go, oh, here we go again, it's Romans, but that you get this love and this hunger for the Lord as we just see him displayed. Um, and, and I think Romans captures, if, if I couldn't, if that's the only book that I could have in the Bible, that'd be the one I'd pick um, because it gives us a, 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 just a great picture of who God is and who we are in light of that. Um, and so I hope that you don't merely enjoy Romans, but that you are transformed by Romans, by, by God using his word over these weeks. And even in your own personal study, I would encourage you, um, <laughs> the title of the series is Read It Yourself. Um, and, and, and the truth is, is um, we, and, and don't, don't hear what I'm not saying, but we can, we can put the scripture on the wall and it can make it very easy for you not to read it for yourself, right? Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one. Um, but you, even this morning, I'm going to show you that uh, it, it, for you to read it yourself, you can see that I, Randy, anyone who stands on this platform, we're not making this up. I didn't invent this message as we heard in Romans chapter 1. It's God's message, and I'm just passing it along, as should you. So this morning, uh, we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to read 11 verses. And in my study this week, I came to realize the more and more I got into it that really this could be two different messages. (laughs) So uh, what I've got to try to do is I've got to just whittle it down, and we have one message this morning. But... These 11 verses really could be spent. Uh, you, could, you could take one Sunday and get the first five or six verses and then another uh, to the latter half. Um, I'm going to read it, and I would ask that you follow along, whether on the screens or in the Bible that you carried in or on your digital Bible. What a great day and age we live in where you can carry it in on, the ver- on that very phone that we find ourselves so addicted to. We've got a Bible in our pocket. Anywhere and everywhere, we can pull it out. That's pretty awesome. So in chapter 2, starting in verse 1 of Romans, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Notice I pause there. I want you to hear that. For in passing judgment... On another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent, that's another word for unrepentant, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself 
on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor in immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. God knows no favorites, we might say. And may God bless his word as I just read it. Last week we covered the last half of Romans chapter 1. And just kind of a, a, a Bible reading tip um, that maybe some of us are aware of and others may not be. I want to help you. There's no chapter break as God wrote the scriptures. We've added that, okay? And they're, they're helpful. I mean, for, you to, for me to be able to tell you this morning, go to Romans 2, you can find it in your Bible, right? Um, if, if we just had the letter written as it came to the Romans at the pen of Paul, then it would just have been this massive letter. I'd say, well, I, good luck finding that line. No, this letter would have been read aloud, and you'd have gotten the whole letter. These churches would have gotten this whole letter. And when Paul's letters were written to churches, they'd disperse uh, those letters. They would, they would read, and people would, they would almost, um, in some ways, would just internalize because they didn't have a copy of the Bible like we do today. So they're extremely disadvantaged, or were they? <laughs> because I find maybe, maybe just maybe, but because we have such access to Bibles that we don't actually in a practical sense, realize how privileged we really are. That those who don't have a Bible or those Bibles that are threatened, that, that we would actually take serious God's word, God's word about storing up or hiding his word in our heart because, well, I can't have a copy of it, so I've got to tuck it away. I've got to memorize it. I've got to commit it to memory. There are people, did you know, that have memorized entire books of the Bible because they realize how incredible the Word of God is and the power that it has. And you can't find that anywhere else. Church, we are not worthy to be here this morning and hear from the Word of God. We do not deserve to see and know the Lord. We do not deserve, I do not deserve to know this message of grace, and be able to share it with you this morning. So there's no chapter break between 1 and 2. And so where we picked up this morning in verse 1, Paul has not lost his train of thought. He's still, he's still in the same place that we were last week. And it's easy from one week to the next to go, oh, okay, so we're starting all over again. We're not. We're not starting all over again. Paul is building He's building, he's building. And what I love about my brother Paul is that he has such experience as a religious, um, his prior life before meeting Jesus Christ, he was a religious fanatic. And now he's a Jesus freak. 
as some of you know what I mean when I say that. But what I love about him, he's had about 20 years of experience in ministry up to this point is what scholars say. And so what he does is as he speaks, as he writes and tells about the good news of Jesus Christ, he anticipates the objections. He anticipates the yours and my what about every, for every case he makes, you'll see shortly after where you have questions and he already is ahead of you answering them. And I love that. And under the influence of the Holy Spirit, better than anyone, he addresses the objections that we all have. What about blank? What about, yeah, Paul, I get that. Yeah, that sounds nice, but you don't know my situation. You don't know my life. You don't know my experience. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you thought that or said that? So in the first chapter, we must keep in mind that Paul has already, in God's courtroom, that was the message last week, in God's courtroom. And and if you are a note taker, today's message, let's call it, No excuses, nor exceptions. Not a real clever title, but that's what I got. No excuses, nor exceptions. In God's courtroom, Paul says there are no excuses and there are no exceptions. He says in chapter 1 that all manner of righteousness is brought to light. There's nowhere to run. There is nowhere to hide. And in verses 29 to 31, he details what he means by all manner of unrighteousness. Evil, he says. Covetousness. To envy. To want what others have instead of rejoicing that they have what they do. Maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, boastful. And I love it. He says, inventors, I really don't love it. It's kind of twisted to say you love this. He says, we are inventors of evil. And it just dawned on me last week when pastor was preaching this and he says we are inventors of evil that Paul directly confronts this notion that we all have well God is responsible for evil or or or, or God I've got to blame God for this or or this so-called problem of evil as if it's God's problem and he's the one to blame Paul says we're the ones who came up with evil if And the case that's being made is there's all these sins that come from our heart because we are first sinners, then we sin. We don't sin and then become sinners along the timeline of our lives. And he says this in such a way that there's no way that your excuse, no matter what it is, because we all have them, can stand. As, as God, who is holy, is looking upon your life. And there, 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 what we've heard this morning 
if not understood in light of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. It's terrifying. It really is. If you don't know Jesus Christ, then you should have chills at some of what Paul is saying, what I am passing along to you this morning. Paul says there are no excuses. And if I could summarize the message this morning, I'll say it this way. It is only the works of Christ that are sufficient to render the following verdict. Sinner, not guilty. Let me say that again. It is only the works of Christ that are sufficient or enough to render the following verdict in God's courtroom. Sinner, not guilty. Up to this point, we can hear Paul, as we hear the letter being read aloud, I can hear some of us in the room and even in this audience that Paul had in mind, pumping their fist. You get them, Paul. You get them. And you know what I mean? We're, we're, we're not immune to this thought process and these feelings today because, you know what, sometimes in the room, we'll hear an incredible sermon so we think it's incredible because we know someone that really needed to hear that. You walk out the door, Randy's standing out there, and you say, man, I really wish Bob was here. He needed to hear that one. Or some of you in the room are like, my husband, that was, that was for him. That was for him. And what does that reveal about us? We're so quick to see the sins of others but not our own. And we see, and we didn't talk about it a lot last week, but in Romans chapter 1, God, through Paul, says, God gave them up. He let them have what they want, what we want as mankind. And he uses an illustration. And he talks about homosexuality. That's where he starts. And you know what people do? They take that verse or those two verses and they weaponize them. And, I, and Randy didn't go there last week, but he has before, and I kind of thought he might, is you can't take those few verses and weaponize them and not continue to read and see that Paul discloses everyone. Whether you're homosexual, whether you are a God-hater, whether you're a gossip, whether you're a disobedient to parents. Whether you're an inventor of evil, <laughs> that is what you and I are. And so we have no ground to stand on as we read in chapter 2 to pass judgment on another because what we will do is we will take a verse like verses 26 and 27 that the women exchange their natural relations for that which is contrary to nature, and men likewise, will take those verses and say, well, I don't do that, so I'm good. I don't sin like them, so I have an excuse. Amen? Do we not? And Paul confronts this ideology by saying, for in passing judgment on another, you stand guilty yourself of doing the very same things. Because your sin smells differently does not mean that you're off the hook. 
So I'm going to reinforce it's only the works of Christ that are sufficient to render the following verdict, sinners not guilty, by answering a few questions. Number one, who can avoid the judgment of a holy God who sees all of our sin? Question number two, do you have Christ as your Savior? I can't get any more plain than that. And question number three, perhaps controversial, what role, if any, do our works serve in God's final judgment? Because Paul goes there. Where else do we see the judgment of a holy God upon sinners in our Bibles? Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Ecclesiastes, let's go back old school, Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 4.13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed of judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I hear an echo. Can you hear it? I hear an echo of Eden, the Garden of Eden. Either we stand naked and unashamed, or we stand naked and ashamed as God sees us for who we really are. Because I can fool you, and you can fool me, but we cannot fool the penetrating eyes of the one who made us. Who is the you who judges in verse 1? Paul says, oh my, oh, he says, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. Who is that? We talked about it in, in uh, BBYM this past week. Self-righteousness is a tricky thing. Because when we hear those of you who judge have no excuse, we can very easily think, oh, I'm good because I don't judge. In fact, I can't stand those who do. Did you hear the judgment there? <laughs> Did you hear the irony? <laughs> I'm not self-righteous. I hate people that are self-righteous. Okay. I think you're a little self-righteous about not being self-righteous. I think you're a little judgy about not being judgy, right? That's the mess that sin is, that we can't even see it for what it is. Oh, but we have 20-20 vision when it comes to other people, don't we? Some have said that Paul is shifting. He's talking about the Gentiles, which, let me remind you, that's just non-Jews. I, I, if I ask you, are you a Jew in the room, I don't think anyone would raise their hand, and I'm not going to do it, but... A Gentile is just someone who's not a Jew. A Greek, as, as it's also said, Paul. He's just talking about those who are not Jews, who don't have this heritage, who do not have any... As we continue in Romans, he'll unpack that more fully, what it even means to be of Israel and, and to be God's chosen people as we see the story, Old Testament into New. We see Paul holds out a mirror 
in this letter for us to see ourselves bankrupt before God, worthy of condemnation at our own hands. At our own hands, our own doing. You see, we have a talent of picking up on the sins of others that we're guilty of in secret. Have you seen this play out? Have you seen it first in yourself? Dare I say. Our secret sins are the ones that elude us. Just as David, a man of old, who killed a man, slept with his wife. And then when confronted by a prophet, let's hear what he says. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan the prophet, the Lord, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Because Nathan tells him a story. And he goes on to say, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out. I've been so good to you. I've been so good to you. And yet you're going to be so arrogant to think that your sin, I'm going to dismiss it. I'm going to look at it differently. We're the same way. You'll see a preacher stands on the platform and he harps on particular sins. He, he, he's on a tirade on sexual sins and, and unfaithfulness and then he's on the headlines for having an affair with someone in the congregation that is not his wife. Why? Because that's how sin works. We try to hide it, but we can see it in the lives of others. And we get to this statement that Paul says, do you presume, and that's a fancy word, or arrogantly assume. Do you arrogantly assume on the riches of God's kindness and, and his forbearance and his patience that God tolerates your sin? That God is patient with your sin and mine. Do you realize that? God is patient with your sin. He is. He's kind, even while we sin. And historically, Christians have called this common grace, as opposed to saving grace. God has set his sights on kindness in such a way that we might reach repentance, that we might have a change of mind about what we have done with our lives and how we have hated God that we would realize that we're condemned and that we have no resources within. No thought, no word, no good deed of the past or even now in the present or of the future that we could do to secure our position before the Lord. Instead, our help comes from outside of us because 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to you and me. We don't do anything to earn our keep. Like the prodigal son who comes back and thinks that he will do just that. He'll be enlisted as a servant in his father's house and he's prepared a speech and he comes and says, God, and we do the same. God, I'll do this. I'll I'll hold up this part of the deal and I'll, I'll meet you halfway and I'll make sure. The father disrupts him. He won't even let him finish his speech that he's prepared. And I just imagine that the prodigal son, he, he's saying, he starts to speak and the father, he says, prepare, prepare the fat calf. And he, he lets him speak a little bit more and he says, and get my ring and my robes. And he just continues to speak. Because God throws a party when one sinner repents. The angels in heaven rejoice. Our help comes from outside of us, not from within us. So what happens so often as God pours forth his grace and mercy on sinners and saints alike? What does that look like? It's the enjoyments of life. God's kindness looks like sun and rain, vacation. Some of you all just got back from the beach. That's God's kindness towards you. Your kids at play. That's God's kindness towards you. Whether you trust the Lord or you don't, that's God's kindness to you. The hobby that you enjoy the big game. Or if you're like me and you enjoy tending that little piece of ground outside your home, it's my happy place. That's God's kindness towards me. Do we presume, do we arrogantly assume that God's kindness is one of two things? Approval of our sinful lifestyle or even proof, maybe, that he doesn't even see it. Or maybe he doesn't even exist. It, it brings to mind something that all, all life long, the accusation has been that the wicked prosper. Why is it that so-and-so can do these things and get away with it? Why is it that I do these things and do those things and I'm not rewarded for them and What gives? Why is it that someone could commit this crime, this heinous, disgusting, vile thing, and yet it appears that not only is he getting away with it, he's successful in business and in the community and has a great reputation. But I know more than that. I'm reminded that this has been said not just by me and not just by you, but back in Psalm 73, it says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their life goes smoothly until they die. They're, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. But pride is their necklace. Their eyes swell out through f- fatness. Their hearts overflow with foolishness. They scoff, scoff, and they speak with malice. 
They set their mouth against heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. Have you seen that? Have you been looking around? Do you see that taking place even now? Who can judge? Who can avoid the judgment of a holy God? Not one. Even when it seems that they're escaping with the lives lives that they lead. The great danger of supposing, we read in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge and yet practice such things yourselves? Do you suppose the danger of supposing, or are you prepared for life beyond this one? I suppose so. I'm I'm a well-meaning person. I, I, I don't like to cause much trouble. I mind my own business. I, I work hard. I mean, I've, I've done some stuff, nothing major, you know, like others. I don't deserve eternal torment. That's our thought process. It is. The great danger of supposing you are going to die. We have seen this week, we have heard of death. Tragic death. There will be an obituary with your name attached to it and mine. Are you prepared? I suppose. That is not sufficient. That is not enough. I suppose. I I, I hope so. Maybe. The answer to the question, who can avoid God's judgment? No one. No one. We must, you must, I must repent. And and you do that upon salvation. You change your mind that you can't save yourself. You repent. You change. I can't, I cannot be good enough. And I haven't been so bad that Jesus, his blood is not enough to cover my sin. You change your mind. You don't trust Christ unless you realize you need him because what you have done and what you're hoping to do is not going to cut it. But Christian, we continue to repent. We continue all our lives long. We flee from our our own self-righteousness or as Paul puts it, self-seeking because God has been nothing but good Not because of us, but in spite of us. And every sin, whether you're a Christian or whether you're unsaved in the room, is a hatred for your fellow man. I was talking to someone that I dearly love this week, and I was explaining how we tend to think that if we're not leading obedient lives, whatever we think that looks like, and we're kind of off the rails and we're you know, tra- entrapped in a particular sin, then it really just doesn't matter. If, I, if I'm failing over here, I might as well just go headlong in it. I might as well just give myself over to it. <laughs> Please don't think that way. Please don't make that mistake. Because every sin, it, we, we, we sit and go, oh, this is not hurting anybody but me. There's never a sin that you and I have committed that has only hurt you. 
Never. There's not one instance where you've sinned on an island in isolation where it hasn't affected other people. Because every sin is a choice to hate God in that moment and to hate those around you. Instead of realize God's love for you, out of gratitude, you can't help but love him too and love everyone that you come in contact with. Whether it's those in your home or those in need of hearing the gospel. Because everyone needs to hear this. Everyone. Man, woman, child, it doesn't matter who you are. At minimum, may it be true of us what what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Don't we want that to be true? So, No one is escaping God's judgment. Second question, do you have Christ as your Savior? Let me catch you flat-footed. What we do here each week, if you've been paying any attention, as the service comes to a conclusion, you can be prepared that we're going to give an invitation for someone who doesn't know Christ to trust him today. Let me catch you flat-footed and ask you right now. I'm not finished, but... Have you trusted Christ? Are you trusting Jesus Christ? Or are you trusting you? Or who you belong to? Or the things that you have? First Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other in-between There's no one else who can stand between you and God. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Mark 1.15, Jesus says at the onset of his ministry, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, what is this gospel? That Christ died according to our sins. In accordance with the scriptures, he, he died for our sins. That he was raised on the third day and in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve and then he appeared to 500. If, if it wasn't enough to appear to the twelve or the eleven, he goes on and appears to 500 people and those witnesses scatter and that's why we're here today. Because this story never grows old. Because it is the story of existence. It is the story that, of all stories. It is reality. No fable, no fairy tale. Is Christ your Savior? Do you know that you're secure on the day of judgment because it is appointed for all of us to die? And what's next? The judgment. And then the final question. What role, if any, do our works serve in God's Final judgment. Spoiler alert. What I'm about to say is not as it first sounds. We are saved by works. Not our own, but those of Jesus Christ. We are saved by works, not ours. Those of Jesus Christ. Abundantly clear. Works 
matter. They matter now. But ultimately, they matter because that is how Jesus Christ accomplished our salvation, our not guilty verdict. And I will not apologize for that. And you can't either. We cannot lose the whole for the part. Why? Because people, you know them. You may be one of them. I know them. Maybe I have been one of them. Can read verses like, he will render each one according to his works and think, hmm, so salvation is not by grace, it's by works. No. <laughs> no. There's a context. And it is very important. We cannot lose the whole for the part. And it's critical in the way you read your Bible. And, why, and while you're listening to a sermon that you don't read something like verse 6 of chapter 2 and think, hmm, okay, so there is something to this works righteousness. Paul's already established that's not the case. And because you can't read Romans chapter 2 in isolation, and that's why we're not going to just camp out in Romans chapter 2 only, we're going to continue along the line so that Paul can be abundantly clear if, it ever, if he ever was that salvation is by grace through faith. And I'll say this much. Even in Romans chapter 4, later on, this is what Paul has to say about the matter. And, the one, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who does not work, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Make sense of that. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, Paul writes these words. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Not by works. Are you saved? Or am I saved? Or is anyone saved? by their works I'll say this much trust Christ look to him often and in as many ways as you possibly can what's that look like what does looking to Christ look like that's not a theory that is regularly faithfully attending your local church that is looking to Christ your personal study. That is beholding Christ. It is looking upon Jesus Christ. Prayer. Diligently pursuing obedience. And if you do those things, don't fret. God takes care of the fruit. He does. He takes care of it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8. For by grace you've been saved. He goes on to say, it's a gift, not a result of works. But he doesn't throw works out the window. Because he goes on to say in the very same breath that we are created in Christ Jesus. We are born again for good works. We're not born again due to our good works. We are born again into good works. And what does he say about it? It was God's idea all along. He prepared them beforehand that you would walk in them. Good works... Love for neighbor is God's idea, not yours. It's God's idea. And so sarcastically, we might say, oh, Paul says he'll render to each one according to his works. Those who 
by patience and well-doing, he'll give eternal life. And then later on, those who are self-seeking, those who are uh, obeying unrighteousness, wrath and fury for them. We could say sarcastically this morning, oh, so all I have to do is be perfect and I'll be given eternal life. Paul is sarcastic, mind you. He does. He builds his case so thick that there is only one way to be saved that he actually tells us there's two ways. Be perfect or trust Christ. Which one? Because you can be permitted to heaven either way. Be perfect? God will say, sure, come on in. Or trust Christ. It's abundantly clear. You must trust Christ. For you, nor I, nor anyone who has ever lived or will live is perfect. And I've got to wrap up. Long-winded. Because you must perfectly obey God's law and commands always. That's admittance to heaven. That's your entry fee. Perfectly obey God's law and commands always, without exception. Who's done that? I'll tell you who. Your Savior. Your Savior has perfectly always obeyed God's commands and his law. He's done it in your place. That's the good news, folks. Is that good news to you? Is that good news to you? Does that do something for you? Does that excite you? And then there's another category. Our deeds in the Christian life will be rewarded. We don't have time for it, but there's actually, the Christian will endure two judgments. No one will escape God's judgment. Not even the Christian. The difference is we pass through it. It's not at the end of your life, God will not judge you. He will. But like the ark in Noah, the judgment happens, but what happens? He's secure. He and his family. That ark is Christ. You are concealed. You are safe. You are secure. And though the floods rage, they can't touch you. And so you'll pass through the judgment, but God also will see all that you've done in his name and all the tears that you've shed for those who don't know him and all those for whom you've given a cup of cold water, he says. Those who, you, the, who are the least of these, that you've taken your own coat off and you've handed it to them. God sees that and he cares. God cares. It does nothing for you as far as the not guilty verdict but don't you want to serve your Lord? Don't you want to serve those who don't know him? And those who do, your brothers and sisters, can you not help but love out of God's love for you? Eternal life. Do not grow weary in well-doing, for you will reap a harvest. Even now, though you don't see it at times, God rewards us. And that's where the prosperity preachers and the prosperity gospel is so dangerous because what they do is they distort the truth. They just tweak it just a little bit 
What they say is true. We will be rewarded, but you don't get those rewards instantaneously. And there is no quid pro quo. There is no tit for tat. You put this in and this is what you get out. How do I know that? Because the man who wrote these words, you know what he said about his life? Five times I received at the hands of Jews 40 lashes. They nearly killed me. Three times I was beaten with rods. How about that prosperity preaching? Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I was in danger from robbers, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, in toil and hardship. Many a sleepless night. Christian, you can have a sleepless night. And it does not mean that you are out of the Lord's favor. Please understand that. God may bless you here and now, but know that ultimately the blessing is to come. In the final analysis, when it's all said and done, God rewards us, first and foremost, because he's rewarding his son. And he's also taking into account the very things that we do right now in gratitude and in love and in compassion and care and concern for those around us while we spend this life. And so as I conclude, the wicked, those apart from Christ, for we were once wicked and condemned to hell, but on account of Christ, we are saved. The wicked apart from Christ are making lifelong investments in hell. Lifelong investments. How terrible is it to hear in Revelation 14 that they'll drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and they'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast. Does does that not terrify you? For those who don't know him, does that not remind you of what you would have faced had you not heard, had you not known? I mentioned David's hypocrisy when he was confronted by Nathan. And it's in the soil of that tragedy that the song in Psalm 51 is sown. And David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Do you realize we can say that this morning? I can say that this morning. For you do not delight in sacrifice, David says, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, a humbled heart. Are you humbled this morning? That's my question. Are you humbled? Because Jesus Christ has forgiven you when you were unworthy and you were guilty in his courtroom. No exceptions, no excuses. And now will you tell someone? And will you invest your life in the mission 
of making disciples who make disciples. Sharing the good news that you cannot be saved by what you do, but only by what Christ has done. Would you stand with me?